This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, white as snow, red as blood, tracing the origins of Snow White. So this week we are continuing our fairy tale series, uh, which we started previously with Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah, we we both enjoyed the Red Riding Hood episode and um, we were keen to do the next one, but we don't want to bombard our listeners with just this series. So we're trying to stagger them with our more usual fare as well. Yes, Um, but we felt like enough time had gone by that we could uh, we could slip in another one um since it it did seem to be received quite well yes definitely okay um okay so starting off we'll do just a brief note on fairy tales but we went into this in more detail at the beginning of the red riding hood episode so just tap into that and listen to the beginning bit again if you need this this backstory as it were yeah um okay so fairy tales or wonder tales uh Uh, typically feature fantasy elements and characters um, and they differ from things like myths and sagas in that those tend to contain a historical component um, or a a religious component and are perceived as being at least somewhat truthful. Um, They're also distinct from fables in that they are not specifically concerned with morals um, or religion. Um, now the water is a little bit muddied here and we kind of got into that in the previous episode so I'm not going to kind of get into it too much Um, but in cultures where witches and demons are perceived as real fairy tales and myths can become interchangeable and when a lot of the fairy tales started to be kind of put down to paper um, they kind of had morals attached onto them and they were particularly morals rather than uh, lessons or commentary which is what a lot of the traditional fairy tales tended to have yes definitely so fairy tales and folk tales are almost impossible to put exact dates to hmm. um, the themes are ancient for all we know we were touching on these themes when we were telling stories around campfires when we lived in caves yeah um <laughs> so you know you can trace the lineage um of folk tales and fairy tales through sagas through classical mythology through wives' tales, through through women's tales, basically, because a lot of them did have some roots, at least, or took elements from the stories that mothers passed on to daughters, grandmothers passed on to granddaughters, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, they were spinning tales. That was another another term for them. Um, the the thing is that written down fairy tales were mostly collected and written down by men. So you've got Wilhelm and Jacob Grimm, you've got Charles Perrault, you've got Gian Battista Vasili. Uh, Joseph Jacobs, Andrew Lang, you know, most of them were male and they collected these fairy tale collections and folktale collections. Yeah. um, And gave them some fairly hefty edits. Yeah. (laughs) And And a new coat of paint. (laughs) Yes. And uh, the thing is, they weren't, uh, you know, as we said, they weren't just male, they were also Christian. Um, (laughs) Christian males of a certain class, etc. And who who tells the story is, is as important as the story itself when it comes to analysing a folk tale. Yes. Um, so it's worth remembering that fairy tales, like folk songs, were political. Often collecting them in this manner had far more to do with this sense of romantic nationalism 
Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, Joseph Jacobs sort of saw what the Brothers Grimm had done in, you know, collecting their German folktales. And the, the Brothers Grimm were very, very, very rabid about not including anything that they perceived as a French origin tale. Yes, which is but, funny because unfortunately there was just no way that they were going to really be able to do that. You couldn't separate things out. They had yeah. to be. Well, but what they insisted on was, you know, that the fairy tale must have at least some german iterations that yeah. appear to be origins i think was the thing um and joseph jacobs was sort of like well i feel that the the, the uk the, the english the irish uh, scottish etc should f- be able to access their own folk tales and he kind of looked at a lot of celtic origin tales and collected them for his celtic fairy tale collection mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which if you actually read bears very little resemblance to <laughs> to actual Irish and Scottish and Welsh mythology, but, you know, never mind that. Yeah. But it, it, was, it was the motive behind this is what we're getting at. So you've kind of got to take a lot of the written down fairy tales with a pinch of salt and bear in mind that it's very difficult to say they, they came exactly from this place. There are a few exceptions that we know were written at a specific time, you know, like The Little Mermaid, for example, which, again, does still have precedence in other oral tales mm-hmm, yeah. and Beauty and the Beast same again but um, generally speaking you can't just say this is the original source it's very difficult yeah absolutely um, and as we've discussed so we're not going to get into it um, the way that obviously these stories were written and the way that they were advertised as for being for children obviously also changed the shape of them hugely um, and the trend of kind of adding context to them, which is hilarious <laughs> to me, as yeah. discussed previously, which is Charles Perrault trying to add context to stories like Puss in Boots and completely missing the the the, the social political commentary, which was the nobles are stupid, um, and trying to make it accessible to nobles. It's hilarious. Hilarious to me. Um, so, yeah, that we are already on, in a very sort of complicated territory. So with that precursor, let's take a little look at the history of Snow White. Yes, um, it's no lie to say this is one of the best known fairy tales, I think, with versions across Europe, Asia, and even further afield. Mm-hmm. Um, it's impossible to tell how much of that is down to cultural cross-pollination of stories, you know, to do with trade routes and and what have you and Mm. how much of it is the result of core themes springing up independently in many cultures and this happens so much more often than i think you know people give credit to yeah and this is this is the moment where uh joseph campbell sort of sticks his head (laughs) in and (laughs) and gets very very you know carl young and joseph campbell start coming in well that's because and we're going to shove them to the side because we're not going to really talk about that um in detail but worth exploring if you are interested Now, Snow White's exact origins are a mystery because of this, Um, but the most well-known variant can be traced to Bavaria, thanks to the Brothers Grimm collecting it for their Kinder und Hausmarschen collection, Um, but its origins are likely far older. Yes. The things that it has in common in various iterations, it always contains the following elements. So a young and beautiful woman or girl incurs the jealousy of her mother, stepmother, rival wife, aunt or aunt, mm-hmm. and as a result is tricked into a sort of suspended animation. Yes. 
Um, now, it first appeared in print um, in Gian Battista's uh, Pentamorone. Um, Penta I'm sorry, I can't, I'm really bad at pronunciating. I, I think it's Pentamorone, but Pentamarone, I could be wrong. I don't. Yeah. I don't really speak Italian very no, well. Yeah, I was going to say, like. Um, I can do the French, but the uh, the Italian remains mysterious <laughs> to me. Um, and that was in a sort of 1634 to 1636. Um, but the tropes are far older. Um, it's in its next incarnation is a Malay tale of Indonesian origins in the 1700s, for example. Uh, despite those two early print examples, it has been argued that the incarnation we know best is in fact based upon a real person. So who was the real Snow White? It's so cool. Such a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the real, the real Snow White um, was Margaret von Waldeck. Um, she lived in the mid-1500s in a small mining town in northwest Germany. And we're talking geographical in terms of northwest Germany. Yeah. Uh, because, yes, anyway, we're not going to get into the history of Germany, but yeah. Now, yes, that would be a very long episode. A very, indeed. very long episode. <laughs> she experienced troubles with her husband's new wife. Um, polyamory wasn't unusual in that Saxon area of Germany, where men still married more um, Danico. Yeah, in a Danish fashion. Yeah. Um, she moved to Brussels, where her great beauty attracted the, uh, the attention of Philip II of Spain. It's always... It's always you're always in trouble when you <laughs> when you attract a monarch's attention, aren't you? <laughs> yes, when the kingly eye falls upon you, yeah, you were. It, it never ends well. Um, now, the match was deemed unsuitable, and it's theorised, and was rumoured at the time, that she was poisoned to get her out of the way. Um, certainly, her handwriting was so shaky in her final letters that she may have had tremors due to poisoning. Um... Though, of course, it could have been illness as well. Yeah. Uh, and she died aged only 21 years old. Yes. So it's that concept of being young and beautiful in your grave, which has a certain morbid romanticism attached to it and the tragedy of this, this young life being mm. snuffed out, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. OK, alternatively, another candidate for real Snow White, um, whose grave was found in 2019... Uh, is the kind and beautiful Maria Sofia Margareta Catarina von Erthel. Gosh, my God. <laughs> you just have to say that and you're like, yep, nobles. <laughs> Got to without, put in even, as many names as possible. <laughs> without even iterating any of her titles. Um, she was born in 1729. So it, far too late to have inspired the Basile version of the story, but a possibility for the Grimm's version. Mm-hmm. Um, Maria's stepmother, Claudia Elizabeth von Erthel, was a domineering woman, by all accounts, mm-hmm. who clearly favoured her own children. Um, this might be doing Claudia a little bit of a disservice, because it may have simply been the, you know, the the type of the um, the sort of ten, twelve-year-old uh, Maria and her new stepmother didn't get on very well. Yeah. And it, it you you can't say exactly what happened there. Yeah. But allegedly, she made Maria's life miserable with both physical abuse and demeaning tasks. So again, we're sort of fitting the Snow White motif a bit here. Yeah. Um, their home was a castle in the heavily forested Lure region of Bavaria. 
This is very close to the glassmaking industries of the time. Lure mirrors were so famed for their extraordinary excellence that it was said of them that they always spoke the truth. Ooh. Um, Maria's father, Prince Philip, another Philip, <laughs> gifted his new wife one of these looking glass mirrors. And you can still see it today if you visit the Von Erthel Castle. Now yeah, that's very cool. Which I think is, I think this is very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't take a big leap from there to theorise that this may have served as the Grimm's inspiration for the magic mirror in their version of Snow White. Yeah. Uh, the Grimm version was also the first to incorporate seven little men and the castle was near seven mountains, which again is mentioned in the Grimm version. Yeah. Um, now, slightly, I mean, still probably quite sad, but not as tragic as the other, as Margareta dying at sort of age 21. But Maria never married. She moved to Bemberg, where she eventually went blind and died age 71. And we don't know very much about her life. That's the other thing. Mm. And what little we do know is in quite ancient German. I say ancient, but older German. Yeah. As in, I wouldn't have any difficulty with the modern stuff, but I might have to get a dictionary out for this one. <laughs> might have to crack out the old German dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> now, we can't be sure that Snow White was ever based on a real person. Um, there's certainly been a lot of criticism over this. It's mm. noticeable that the grave tombstone that was found in 2019 became part of a tourist attraction, strangely enough. Right. <laughs> and it's also notable that the guy who suggested, oh, I know who the true Snow White was, the inspiration for um, Snow White, the Grimm's version of the fairy tale, sometime in the 1800s, he said it was, it was Maria and... Um, that the story was commonly known in the area but let's note that he was running a local history museum at the time and was adding several snow white themed exhibits right <laughs> so you kind of got to follow the money on that one a little yeah. bit though i mean that being said he might have it might have genuinely been well there's some history here and that's why i'm doing the exhibit but you know yes you've you've kind of got to hmm um and ah a little bit about that absolutely I think it's fair to say that, you know, while the Grimm's may not have had a particular person in mind and they simply took the basis of a Bavarian folktale, they mm. were inspired to add elements by the stories of the, the two tragic stories of these women. Yeah. And the other thing is that, of course, you've got to bear in mind that w these stories were collected from oral tales and the oral tales would have adapted and changed over time and to fit also with the period in which they were being told so you could very well have had you know one speaker of the tale who would add elements based on what they could see what they'd actually heard the rumors etc you know if you're in a castle and you happen to know that your lady is is abusing her stepdaughter or stuff like that or there's this whole thing about how she gazes at the mirror you might incorporate that into your story you know these, yeah. into these spinning tales so there's every possibility that actually a lot of sort of particularly sort of nobles and stuff like that gossip would have fed into the tale anyway so even if the Grimm's weren't doing it on purpose they might still very well have ended up incorporating those things as well and the other thing to remember of course is that it's very possible that the Grimm's were also um, being fed other uh, fairy tales at the same time and other folk tales might have sort of injected themselves into um, into Snow White so for example there are parallels between Snow White 
and the snow maiden yeah yeah definitely and it, it is interesting you quite i think sometimes you I know that they categorise folk tales and fairy tales in certain ways um, uh, based on usually a collection of tropes or themes in, that are central to them. Mm-hmm. And the idea of a beautiful young girl, the suspended animation, the thing, uh, you know, technically this puts it in the, the, the larger category, which includes things like Sleeping Beauty and, as you say, the Snow Maiden. Yeah, and the Glass Coffin. Yeah. So, I mean that's all very interesting. We're we're sort of paring things down when we do these episodes, just because we would be talking for a very long time if we yeah. didn't do that. But we can introduce certain ideas which you guys can scurry off and look at yourselves if you like yes. to, or if you want to know more about it, give you know leave us a comment and perhaps we'll have a whole episode and delve into that. Yes. So let's look at some of the main themes of the Snow White collection of tales. Yes. Um, obviously, I mean one of the things that really strikes me about Snow White is that of you know, it's part of a, a body of fairy tales where the male characters are very tangential to the plot as in mm. they're not really even necessary um, yeah. you could tell the story without them because they're very much like that and then a man came along and rescued her kind of thing <laughs> um, yeah or that you know you needed a husband there in the first place to act as the catalyst for this competitive jealousy so i i find that very very interesting um, and we're going to talk about some of the other stuff to do with that in a moment. But um, the, I suppose the big theme is that these are stories of, of jealousy unrewarded. So uh, vanity and toxic narcissism are a huge, huge part of these, this body of stories. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is the lengths in which the Queen will go to kind of secure... Um, her position and what's what's particularly is interesting you think yeah when she went pretty far she went full-on murder but she didn't just go full-on murder she actually made herself ugly in in certain versions you know turned herself into a haggard old kind of crone um, in order to kind of defeat Snow White I mean, that yeah. is insecurity on the next level. <laughs> but the weird thing is, it's both insecurity and also this grandiose ego, which is something you see in what we now understand of as, as narcissistic personality disorder, yeah. which kind of suggests that that disorder has existed for centuries and centuries and centuries. It's just that we now categorise it. And yet it was recognised and warned against in fairy tales. Yeah, and I absolutely. find that fascinating. It is, yeah. And, you know, of course, you ca- again, have to give a nod to, without getting into it, um, the three kind of figureheads and the idea that that kind of goes into it, which is the jealousy of the mother, the figure of the crone trying to kill the maiden. And you've got the maiden, the mother of the crone there kind of idea. Um, but also just this idea of the unnaturalness of trying to outcompete youth youthfulness um and the sheer arrogance of saying i as an older woman um i'm going to be as young and beautiful as a, as a as a younger woman which again we look at now and just be like well that's a bit silly um but if you think about it <laughs> sort of categor- categorically <laughs> The other thing is that Snow White is, you know, was a child. So, of course, the mother is not going to look anything like Snow White as the child who is the epitome of innocence. And we get into squicky territory there. We um, do. 
we are going to get into some squicky territory. Yeah, this, we are. Well, yeah, unfortunately, you yeah. can't talk about it without getting into sort of squicky territory. But yeah, it's this complete. It's kind of this idea of vanity and toxic narcissism to the point of trying to actually reverse the rules of life. If that makes sense. Definitely. Um, the other point I would make on this is that this, you know, okay, let's say you were a queen. You became queen, but you were actually a woman from a slightly lower status. Mm. Your your future husband's eye fell on you, and what initially attracted him was your beauty. Well, that's not actually that unusual for many courts and things of, of sort of the mid fifteen hundreds and earlier. And this is a cross cultural thing. Yeah. Um. Maybe you perhaps you don't have any real power, but you had the power of a woman's wiles, if you like. Inverted commas intended there. Yeah. And then once you attain the position, well, your husband is free to take other wives as well. And you should not begrudge him that. And this, again, is a cross-cultural thing. Um, so the only way you can retain the power that you have managed to get for yourself is to make sure that you are peerless. But she, the, the queen kind of takes it even further than that. And some of them, if, rereading some of the tales, if you, you look at the way that they're, they're very carefully phrased... It's almost like her entire identity is wrapped up with being the most beautiful in the sense that she would not exist if she was not the most beautiful and therefore the most important to her husband, the king or Raja or whoever. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this is, it's again, this is interesting um, in that you actually have kind of these themes discussed by Angela Carter's The Snow Child, which is meant to be it's an amalgamation of Snow White and the Snow Maiden. Um, and what's interesting is that she draws on these kinds of these themes by sort of going into the into the theories of, you know, Angela Carter was very interested in Le Marquis de Sade, and she wrote The Sadian Woman at the same time that she was writing The Bloody Chamber, which this story is included within. Um, and she brings up these ideas of of power and the power of beauty um, and kind of like that tiger versus lamb mentality which is that if you are not um, you know if you are not the tiger you are the lamb yeah and you kind of have to destroy everything and what's interesting is that in that version the snow maiden she is the creation the ideal version that is created by um, the the Lord, I can't remember what his position is, but he creates her from his imaginings in the same way that you get with the Snow Maiden. And this is a really interesting idea in folk tales in that you look at the stepmother in Snow White and you can almost kind of make that leap of saying she is an amalgamation of what is desired. And the one thing that she cannot get back is youth um you know she's she's everything that's perfect and she has and the and basically the only way to maintain that is to have no kind of comparison <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely which if you think about it means that your killing pool is going to get wider and wider every year because if you're suggesting that um beauty is dependent upon youth purity and innocence then every year you're going to lose a little bit of that so she would have done better to have broadened her horizons as to what beauty really is 
Yes, but um, for a woman who was obsessed with looking in a mirror, that was very unlikely. Yes. Okay, that takes us on to the difficult topic of mother-daughter abuse, which this fairy tale is also warning about. Um, I find it very interesting that the Grimm's version, the Schneewittchen, mm. is uh, in the original that they put forward to for publication. It's actually Snow White's own mother who does yeah. all those terrible things, and they were made to edit it because they said, uh, you know, despite the fact that their publishers were, were were okay with cannibalism and necrophilia and all sorts of other things, it's kind of like, no, 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 you cannot have a mother trying to murder her daughter. That's too far. Yeah, <laughs> it's not it, suitable for children. Yeah, they did the same thing with Hansel and Gretel. It's like make it a yeah. stepmother, and 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 we're good because they just they just couldn't conceive of the idea. Um, and of course they were trying to give out this idea of, of what the motherly role should be. And so they had to create this kind of insurgent, they had to create this this sort of figure who inserts herself but isn't actually a mother, she is a she's a fake you know, a fake yeah. sort of figure. Um, which is laughable because like, I know lots of people, myself included, who have very nice stepmothers. <laughs> yeah, very definitely. And you know, there's examples of this fairy tale, not this specific fairy tale, of fairy tales where the stepmother is actually a good person as well. Yeah, exactly. Harder, but you know, I think everyone remembers the wicked stepmother because it's so awful. Yeah. But whether you have a mother or a stepmother, the point is, I think, I think in pretty much every single one of the example tales we're going to talk about in a moment, there is a point where the queen is okay with Snow White and then and she's acting as the girl's mother. She, I mean, the ones where it's very definitely... What's noticeable is Snow White's mother dies early on in the narrative yeah. and Snow White is left alone and motherless. And the queen then usually fulfills the role of a mother figure for her. She is the only mother that Snow White has ever known which is, that's a powerful dynamic right there. Yeah. And then she asks the mirror or the magic fish, believe it or not, in some versions, or um, or she asks her chamberlain, who apparently has no nouse when it comes to politics and being <laughs> diplomatic about a woman's appearance, or whoever it is that she asks whether she's more beautiful, the answer she receives is that Snow White is more beautiful. And from that moment, her heart is set against the girl. And it is almost this this Jackal and Hyde switch between being, you know, maybe an indulgent mother, maybe not, a, you know, a very devoted mother, but an indulgent mother who, who is fond of the girl to being her worst enemy. Yeah. And, and, what, it's, and there is a lot of abuse tied up in that. Yeah. What's really interesting is if we, I mean, putting the fish and the Chamberlain aside... <laughs> Um, and I just have an image of, of me holding the door open. There's a chamberlain holding like a, a salmon and I just close the door in his face. Um, putting them aside, uh, the, idea, the interesting thing about the mirror is that obviously we end up with a talking mirror. But if you consider what the mirror is, um, it's a conversation with oneself. It's a facing of, of the truth, but also an inverted truth. And there's a lot of symbolism there. Um, and what's really interesting for me is the idea that one day she kind of she looks in the mirror and she sees herself and you can almost imagine she suddenly spots a you know a, a line or, or something like that or she notices that she looks tired and she looks back at the, the child that she knew and she no longer sees a child she sees someone who's on the cusp of burgeoning into adulthood 
and suddenly they're rivals. Suddenly this is not mother and child, it is two women who are vying for power. Um, and that dynamic is horrifying um, because it is, you know, one shouldn't be competing with one's own child. Um, and the idea of competing with one's own child to the point where, first of all, you demean them, push them around, abuse them, and then try to kill them. I mean, that's obsessive behaviour. Yes. Um, and it is very, very disturbing. And obviously, in the covert terms of fairy and folk tales, it is still very much present there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, again this is another thing I find fascinating because I think sometimes people take this idea that we talk about difficult topics nowadays more openly and yes we probably do but it wasn't that people weren't aware of them hundreds of years ago they were aware of father-daughter sexual abuse they were aware of mother-daughter abuse yeah it's just that how you warned people about them was different yeah um, okay, uh, as, since we're talking about unsavoury topics to do with Snow White, necrophilia. Yes. <laughs> now, the cheerful topic. Yeah, this is this is the this is the moment where again I, I like to make the joke, which is that if it's you can tell it's French if it's got um, bestiality, and you can tell that it is German if it's got necrophilia, because by God, a lot of German fairy tales really delve into this. Yes, although, as you'll see in a moment, the Italian and Indonesian variants definitely have elements of the necrophilia type. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, no, I'm not saying that only Germans are... Sorry, this whole sentence was going to come out really wrong. Only Germans are into necrophilia. <laughs> um, no, I'm not trying to say that. <laughs> um, Bas- basically, um, where we're, we're coming from necrophilia here is that Snow White, in pretty much every iteration of the tale is so beautiful upon her death, her presumed death, that no one can bear to bury her in the dark earth. So she is preserved in a crystal or glass coffin. Yeah. So that people may look on her. Now I find that really, really creepy, but okay. Yep. <laughs> but she, she never changes, she never rots, at which point you've kind of got to be thinking, maybe she's not dead, but apparently nobody in the fairy tale ever thinks this at any point. <laughs> It's, yeah, again, it's an interesting idea, though, because people just go, oh, this is magical. Um, But the fact of the matter is, is that there are several real-life cases of people who have been sealed so well, or who, through some, you know, ingestion because they've been poisoned or something like that, their bodies have actually been preserved very, very well. Like, I think, uh, you might, I might be entirely wrong here, but I think Napoleon was just so full of arsenic. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, that bodies can can be preserved, particularly if they're sort of like in airtight sort of things. And also, of course, there was the case where people went, "Well, that that person's dead," and they very clearly were not actually dead; they were in some kind of coma um, or whatever. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the number of coffins that when they they disinterred a graveyard in London, yeah, and they had to move coffins around. There was a, a significant percentage of them that actually had scratch marks on the inside of the lid, which I find very disturbing. Yeah, there was. Uh, it was. It's the one story that always gets me, which is like a a a man sort of buried his wife, um, and she woke up, managed to get out, unburied herself, walked all the way home. And her husband was there, and she knocked on the door, and he said, "You know, if your if your mother wasn't dead to his children, I'd swear that was her knock." 
He opened the door, saw her, had a heart attack, died. <laughs> they buried him in the place where she was, and she went on to live for like several decades. <laughs> Yeah, there's some comical irony in that. Yeah. One, <laughs> See, I like. I'm not sure if that's an urban myth or not, but I just love the idea of it. <laughs> I've heard a similar version of. It. I've heard a similar story that I know to be true from Bulgaria, but I'm, yeah. I'm going off on a tangent. We'll, we'll talk about burying people alive another time, maybe. <sighs> maybe, maybe for <laughs> maybe, Halloween. Maybe, maybe for um, Halloween. <laughs> maybe Halloween. But the, the necrophilia it, it goes beyond just keeping a beautiful corpse to be admired. Um, at some point during the story, the prince, or the uncle, or whoever comes along, and pretty much falls in love with the corpse, which is very disturbing. Yep. And you know, offers money in order to take this this um, takes no white away in her coffin. So it's kind of like, well, is it that you need a talking piece for your house which you're fitting up because, uh, or is it something else? And it's noticeable in various tales, certainly the Bavarian origin one, which the Grimm's used, and certainly in an Indonesian one, Mm -hmm. um, where Snow White is taken up to a chamber which only the prince has the key to, and he visits sometimes for days at an end. What is he doing in there with a beautiful corpse sealed in a crystal coffin? What's going on? And I think we're supposed to infer that quite a lot more is going on than he's just admiring her. Yes. Um, and there are so, several reasons for why we're supposed to infer this. <laughs> yes. Um, which is that actually in some versions of the story, um, a few babies pop out. Yeah, I mean, that, that's more something that we'll talk about when we get to doing a Sleeping Beauty one. Mm. But um, yes, there are... There's a little bit of crossover there as well. Yeah. Okay, so some of the symbolism that you find in the later versions of the story has to do with puberty. Yes. Quite obviously. Um, and, you know, you've got the, the lacing of the corset, the combing of the hair, you know, adorning yourself as you, you come into womanhood. The, the whole idea of eating an apple, um, mm-hmm. which is an obvious allusion to, you know, the, the fall in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, sexual knowledge and, and awakening and things. Um and some of them reference <laughs> what I find in- interesting in some of the iterations of the story is that whoever takes Snow White in and acts as her guardian, whether it be the dwarfs or a kindly old man, offer her the choice whether she would like to live with them as a wife or a daughter. And she nearly always says a daughter. <laughs> but they offer her the choice. So that's good. Yeah. Um, but there is clearly a, well, you are so beautiful, obviously, I would absolutely not kick you out of bed. You want to just be married to me. <laughs> and it's worth remembering that many common law marriages were made that way. The only way you need, you, the only thing you needed in order to be considered man and wife was to dwell under the same roof for three days and nights. And obviously to have had sex. And then that, that was it. You were considered married you didn't need a priest to officiate that was a much later affectation yes so um yes (laughs) finally we have the sacred number seven i always find this interesting as well because Mm. obviously this is something that the grims brought in specifically but you know the number seven appears in an awful lot of um, fairy tales anyway but in many versions of the myth uh, the myth the the fairy tale (laughs) Snow White is seven when the queen takes against her. She's seven years old. Seven is known to be the age of reason. Seven is also, in numerological terms, considered the number of 
um, spiritual enlightenment. Um, that there's a lot of there's a big body of myth just behind this number. Uh, <laughs> the house of the seven dwarfs or the seven little men is behind seven hills, and it's this repetition of the number seven. So there's a lot of spiritual language sort of hidden within the fairy tale itself. Yeah. What's What's interesting to me in particular is that. Um, well, so if we talk about the dwarfs, um, obviously there's there's two meanings here um and this has obviously been raised as a point of contention which is that we you are there are people in the world with dwarfism um little people small people um i believe is the is it little people it is i think that's the preferred term now preferred term yeah um but the word um you know of of dwarf comes from the norse mythology and what's interesting within sort of Norse mythology is that uh, dwarfs were, I believe, at no point actually described as being little. If they were smaller, it was in it was in a contrast to the giants, um, and they lived underground. Yes. Um, and there is this kind of, and it, it was sort of said that um, some versions kind of see them actually as the same as sort of elves. Um, and for me, of course, I get into very excited territory here um, because we start to see again this idea of the kind of the Neolithic burials, um, fairies, etc. Um, and therefore the idea of living under hills, underneath mounds, etc. And so if you have these kind of these seven hills and then you have these seven kind of mythical sort of creatures um you know titled as as dwarves but dwarves is in um kind of elves as in fairies rather than little people uh we start to kind of to get into that older kind of crossover with mythology as well yeah definitely um i think it's also worth mentioning that in schneewittchen um the term used is manling and manling means little men Mm. And um, since it's noticeable that this was sort of originally, or certainly for the Brothers Grimm version, it was taken from the Bavarian era, era, the Bavarian area, the Bavarian area. Apparently, try saying that seven times fast. <laughs> um, which was large, you know, there was a lot of mining in the area as well, and the mine shafts during the fifteen hundreds tended to be very narrow. So yeah. they used to send children down, and they also used to send very smaller. You know, if you were a smaller man, you you made a better miner. So it might yeah. literally just have meant she lived with seven miners. She lived with seven little men, literally smaller humans who were. Yeah, absolutely. Were able, but you know, we, we would still consider them to be within the you know what we perceive as the normal range of human height. Yeah. And it, it then it kind of got mistranslated, and people thought, oh, actually, dwarves makes a better because it's sort of the fantasy element. Yes, and uh, and then of course, yeah, this is the problem: is that there's a lot of kind of crossover between mythological, fantas- fantastical dwarves, as in from Norse mythology, and real little people with dwarfism, um, which the word came from. So, uh, like, you start to get this junction, <laughs> really. <laughs> yeah, and once again, at that point, it depends who's telling the tale doesn't yeah. it so okay let's look at some versions of snow white um shall i go first with the yeah go on the the young slave which first appeared in 
as we said in Pentameroon by Gian Battista Basili. Mm -hmm. It's an Italian version of the story, although we know it to be older, and this was around 1634. Um, now, in The Young Slave, there, what, <laughs> there's a lot more about how the conception of Snow White came about. It was a, a young and very beautiful lord's sister who was playing a game with some other women of her class, and the game was to jump over a rose bush and all of them failed apart from this young woman. She jumped over, knocked off a rose leaf, and then ate, ate the rose leaf. And three days later, she discovered she was with child. Instead of turning her out, her brother arranged for her to go and have the baby quietly in the little cottage, and seven fairies turned up to bless the child. So we've got a little bit of crossover with Sleeping Beauty here. Um, unfortunately, the seventh fairy, as she was moving towards the crib, um, she was in such a hurry that she twisted her ankle and the pain made her cry out a curse <laughs> instead of a blessing and she cursed the child to die on her seventh birthday <laughs> um, from poison that's such a attached. specific curse to make <laughs> it's like oh I twisted my ankle you will die on your seventh birthday from a poisoned comb and that's literally um, that everything kind of happens from there um, yep. Snow White dies uh, on her seventh birthday, allegedly, with this comb wedged in her hair. Apparently nobody could find the comb for some reason. <laughs> and she was she looked so lovely, her mother couldn't bear to put her <laughs> under the earth, so she put her in seven crystal coffins, one after the other, and then had her taken up to a tower room and the door locked and she kept the key. Shortly after she died, and she passed all her worldly goods on to her brother, who'd been so good to her, and said, don't ever enter this chamber, mm -hmm. here's the key. <laughs> and from there, <laughs> the brother then gets married. He gets married to a young, beautiful woman who is naturally curious about this locked chamber. And when he's out hunting, she goes in, finds the key, unlocks it, and then goes, my goodness, there seem to be seven crystal coffins here of descending size I wonder what could possibly be in the middle one <laughs> opens all the coffins finds the girl and is enraged at the girl's beauty and she is so enraged that she grabs a hank of the girl's hair and yanks it and the poison comb falls free and Snow White sits up awake and at that point um, Snow White cries out for her her mother which is very sad because her mother's dead and has just left her in that tower room mm -hmm. um and her aunt-in-law says, I'll give you mother, and takes her down to the kitchens where she dresses her in rags and beats her so that she's bruised and bloody and sets her to servants' tasks and makes her life a living hell. And when her husband says, oh, who's this weird girl that's like scrubbing around in the kitchens down there? The aunt says, well, this is a slave who was sent by my family who is so wayward she needs to be regularly beaten to keep her in line. And he's like, oh, right, OK, that sounds legit. <laughs> Just let's get on with it. From there, the girl's life is so miserable that she, I think there's, the, it, it's so miserable she kind of doesn't want to live. It's that bad. And it's very noticeable that that is said in the story. You know, she kind of wants her life to end. Um, there's a fair coming up and the Lord, who's a very kind man, asks everybody in the household what present they would like from the fair, including the young slave. And she asks for a knife, mm -hmm. a small rag doll, and um, 
I, something else. I can't remember what the third item is. It might come back to me in a moment. Um, anyway, he gives the items over to her and every night Snow White sits down with this doll and talks to it and, you know, insists that the doll reply to her. She tells her whole woeful tale what's been done to her because no one else will listen. And eventually she threatens to take her own life if the doll will not reply. And the doll's like, okay, you don't need to do that. I'm not deaf, which is, again, very weird. <laughs> One night, the, the Lord, her uncle, overhears her talking to the doll and he asks her to repeat her story for him. And he believes her and he confronts his wife with this. And he's so horrified by her, her jealousy and by her cruelty to his niece that he sends his wife away. He banishes her and abandons her and has nothing more to do with her. Um, he raises the niece and sees that she is married properly. So there you go. <laughs> That's actually a really, I was going to say it's a nice version of the story. I mean, it's not particularly nice, but, uh, you know. It's, it's very heavy on effectively the mother-daughter abuse angle. Yes. But See, yes, I, I, I thought it was going to end with him marrying his niece, and uh, I was I was braced for that. that. I was I was braced for it, and instead it was just like, and now I shall raise you, and I shall marry you properly, and you shall live happily ever after. And I was like, well, that's nice. He's a nice guy. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, maybe if it had been said to set in ancient Rome, it would be kind of like, yeah, okay, you're marrying your niece. That's perfectly normal if you're a Roman emperor. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so that's one of the earliest written irritations, 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 iterations of the story. I'm using all the wrong words today. <laughs> Our next iteration is the prose poem Bidasari, which is from Indonesia. It's a Malay tale. Um, this dates back to around 1750, and it has many of the same features as the young slave, except that the young wife in this um, is... You know, she's she's married to a prince and she asks him who is the most beautiful and he says her. And then she asks her serving women who is the most beautiful and they're like, oh, it's obviously you, etc, etc. Um, when she speaks to her husband again, you know, how beautiful am I? She said, well, if there was another woman more beautiful, you would marry her. And he said, oh, I cannot say I'd do that. She's like, I am certain this is true. And she sends her Diangans. Um, her serving women out to find out whether there are any more beautiful women and um, these these serving women these attendants maids in waiting if you like mm -hmm. um, finally find a, a girl called Bidasari who they say oh no she is indeed more beautiful than our queen and they go back and tell her <laughs> this is the bit I'm kind of like you you have no diplomacy skills at all um the queen is incensed and she sends them back to take Bidasari under false pretenses into her house. And once she's there, this is where the poem gets really, really graphic. Once she's there, she beats Bidasari, punching her and hitting her in the face until she's unrecognisable. I just want you to think for a moment how hard and how often and how violently you have to assault someone so that their features literally cannot be recognised it's horrifying it is horrifying um, it follows a lot of the same sort of tropes and things as the young slave um, but the, the notable difference is that there's some magic so instead of a talking doll 
Um, finally, Bidasari is convinced to admit to the Queen that the reason she is so beautiful is to do with a magical fish that she is to wear, that the Queen must wear around her neck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course. Um, it, it, it all gets a bit weird. Um, anyway, it, it follows the usual sort of tropes. Um, Bidasari is finally poisoned and is borne away by the Queen's own serving women, who are they're horrified by how cruel this, this Queen is being. Um, to this this poor young girl who whose only crime is the fact that she happens to be more beautiful so they i mean the queen says take her away and kill her basically and the serving woman like okay here's the deal the queen wants us to kill you but we're not going to do it we're going to hide you in this castle Mm -hmm. um and we're just going to take back the lungs and liver of a deer instead because that's what the queen's asked for yeah um and you, you've got to stay here. You can't go out again because she will kill you. Um, so the queen eats the lungs and liver of the deer. She stews them up and eats them. It's all very, very graphic in this poem and really gross. <laughs> and everything's all right for a while um, until the queen discovers that the Snow White figure, Abidasari, hasn't actually died. And obviously she sets after her. Um, she poisons the girl and the girl falls into a, a death state mm-hmm. and her serving women who are now completely against the queen yes <laughs> convey her away once again uh, but she's too beautiful to bury so they lay her out on a dragon-shaped couch and drape her with fine lawn um and and just sort of leave her there later on the prince who <laughs> re-enters the narrative uh, happens by the castle and finds this young girl lying still as death and he I don't think he kisses her. He does something else. I think the thing was... It was <laughs> really that sounds really that dicey. Skipped, yeah. yeah, obviously he does something else. It's kind of like, oh, it's a beautiful corpse. I don't mind if I do kind of thing, which apparently happens a lot in fairy tales. Um, no, I think the queen poisoned her with a um, like a, a small needle or something in her finger and he mm-hmm. draws it free and she wakes up. Um, but he spent some time with her and Bidasari is sort of horrified to find this man she doesn't know sort of like gazing down at her with calf eyes and he says well will you not kiss me i've been here with you for two days and the implication is i've been here with you for two days we've done a lot more than kissing it's just you didn't happen to be awake oh no <laughs> that's so gross and the is kind of like okay well i guess you are a prince so yay we'll get married now and the prince showing he does have some morals goes back to his former wife confronts her with her actions and says he could never love a woman so cruel and she's abandoned she's shut away and he has nothing more to do with her okay it is uh, it's very convenient i mean (laughs) (laughs) he's like oh yes (laughs) an excuse to get rid of her (laughs) for the newer model um my god uh they really, yes. they really weren't playing around with that version, were they? <laughs> no, they weren't. It's it's the whole sort of, yes, and she struck her until her face could not be seen anymore. And I'm like, what? <laughs> that's extreme. That's, that's wow. <laughs> the, the, the constant physical abuse you would have to apply to somebody for that to be the case is just horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Okay, so let's move on to the next one, which... Perhaps you'd like to field, and is actually, believe it or not, not as bad as Bidasari, despite yeah. being German. Um, 
so this is uh, Schneewitzen. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, Schneewitzen. Schneewitzen. Yeah. Your German is better than mine. Um, <laughs> and this is, of course, the Brothers Grimm version, uh, which comes from Bavaria. Um, and this is very much the version which feeds into a lot of of the versions that we know today. Yes, definitely. Um, I mean, I, I don't really know, kind of, obviously, we start off in the kind of the same sort of territory. It doesn't go into nearly the same kind of details in regards to, because the 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 Brothers Grimm didn't tend to, in, into the details of, you know, how the situation was. All we know is that you have uh, Snow White, um, and as we discussed previously, uh, she, originally this was meant to be her actual mother, but this is then changed because the uh, <laughs> the publishers were just like, "All right, <laughs> this is a bit much, guys." Like, nope. <laughs> no bit much, guys. Um, and yes, you have this queen who speaks into a magic mirror and discovers that. She is no longer the fairest of them all. And this is where we get the very typical kind of the figure of the huntsman, who I don't think in that kind of iteration really makes any sort of real appearance in any other version of of the story. I mean, you've obviously got the, the sort of the house maidens um, in uh, in the Indonesian version, but he, he is kind of a bit of a character onto himself um, in in this version don't you don't you agree yeah i think so i mean there there are some things that are just sort of classic snow white tropes that appear in schneewittchen that don't that then appear in subsequent ones which have clearly been influenced by it so for example you have the old queen sitting at the window embroidering and she pricks her finger as she's looking out at the snow and three drops of blood fall on the snow and she says how i wish i had a daughter with skin as white as snow hair as black as ebony and and lips as red as blood which is actually a really horrifying description if you think about it it. that's kind of like i wish i had a vampire child yeah which i think neil gaiman has has played around with um (laughs) previously um yeah and again we start to see very clearly here uh the kind of the links between uh, the snow maiden and the um and snow white what's interesting to me is that in every iteration we've kind of seen so far she is magical in some way she's she never has a, a kind of she's never conceived in a natural way there's always something a little bit magical about her yeah, she is. So I suppose the term is favoured by the fairy folk, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But of course, the problem with being favoured by the fairy folk is that <laughs> it, she is inevitably her life is inevitably miserable. Yeah, isn't it like we, they bugger off when you really need them? Kind they of thing. they really do. Um, I agree with what you mean about the huntsman because mm. obviously the huntsman is instructed to take Snow White out into the forest and kill her and bring back her liver and her lungs. Yes. Um, And, you know, because the Queen wants those as proof. And Snow White, the only thing, she's seven at this point, I'd like to say as well. That's the thing. She's a seven-year-old girl. And the only thing she can do is beg for her life. And the huntsman lets her go because he doesn't want to kill this innocent, beautiful child. 
and also he reasons that the animals in the forest which you know if we're looking at the Schwarzwald yeah. which was full of wolves and boars and bears and lynxes That's, and things yes yeah, like um, they'll probably do it for me do it I for don't me. have to feel guilty about it <laughs> yes and he kills a young boar on the way home and takes the liver and lungs of that back to the queen who then eats them um, echoing the Slavic tradition of witches eating the hearts of their victims in order to gain their power and I think that's an interesting thing to mention there. The reason yeah. the queen eats the heart or the liver and lungs is because she wants to imbibe Snow White's beauty. Yeah, which is horrifying, really, if you yes. think about it. If I, you don't really have to think about it that hard, to be honest. It's just generally quite awful. <laughs> but that was Snow White's only power, was to beg for her life. Yes. Um, Obviously, we know she didn't die. She finds the house with seven little beds, seven little plates and cups and things, and how she eats a little bit from each. Again, we're echoing seven, seven, seven all the way. Yes. Um, and when the dwarfs, or the manling, the little men, find her, they agree she can stay if she keeps house. I still find this slightly horrifying because it's like, well, you can stay if you keep house, but she's a seven-year-old girl. The way I always see it, though, is that I see it that if we think about it in terms of them being like a practical group of people yeah. who, you know, right, well, you know, you're another mouth to feed. So you've kind of got to make yourself useful in some in some manner. Um, I kind of love the idea that they're like, yeah, seven year old keeping house and they're, <laughs> they're probably not really expecting that much from her. Like, yeah okay so what you can do is in the same way that you would get young kids to do tasks you know yes back yeah. in the day <laughs> I, I don't think they were really expecting that much from her. i mean if you go with the disney version apparently she can summon all the animals of the forest to help her so there's yeah that. she yeah she's got some pretty amazing powers um in that <laughs> respect um and and this is never questioned it's not like it with um you know the, the snow the snow queen where at least it's suddenly like no actually apparently i do have some pretty weird power <laughs> sort of acknowledge it yes. <laughs> um so yes uh, so she's there she stays with them and they kind of they sort of adopt her and it's this weird situation whereby you kind of you ask yourself and depending on the kind of the version that it's told are they guardians are they, um, and if she is kind of a bit fairy, as it were, um, is this, are they in some way kind of, are they also fairy in some way? Um, are they more like parents to her? Um, you know, what what's the exact nature of the relationship? Um, we don't really no and of course there are several implications and i'm sure there would have been several implications depending on who was telling the story but for the most part you know they they seem quite benevolent in terms of you know how they act around her they don't seem to want anything from her beyond her being you know useful to a certain degree making herself useful yeah definitely and there are just a just a little sidebar because i haven't we haven't got time to discuss every single iteration of the story, but mm. there's a, a version of this, an Albanian version, where she doesn't live with seven little men, she lives with 40 dragons. And it's yeah. a magic ring that sends her into suspended animation. There's also a very weird version 
which seems to be truncated and chopped off. I'm trying to remember where it comes from. I think it might be a Swiss version where she goes and she lives with these seven little men and a peasant woman knocks on the door and sees Snow White living with seven men and immediately assumes that she's shacked up with them, calls her a slut, <laughs> strikes her, and Snow White's kind of, and the dwarf, you know, the seven little men come out and, and say, how dare you, etc., etc. And the woman's like, oh, this is not the last you've heard of this. She goes back, gets a bunch of villagers, and the villagers all come in and kill the seven dwarfs. And they bury them, and then that's it. And it's kind of like that's the end of the story. They say the little girl was never heard of again. It's very disturbing. <laughs> like the way that you could see it, though, is that is that they go in and just say, like, why is why do we have this many men and one tiny child with no no woman? Perhaps we need to help her. Um, but the, the just the fact that she beats the child immediately and then, yeah, and then I mean, the I child think disappears. She, that's horrifying. She's supposed to be sort of fourteen or fifteen, so marrying age by the terms of the time. But it's still a really sort of what the hell happened? <laughs> anyway, that was that was weird. Um, back to Schneevich and the Queen makes three further attempts to kill Snow White. She's she's obsessive, as Madeline pointed out earlier. Yeah. Her narcissism will not let her rest. Yeah. I mean, like, I know that, you know, everyone can go through a rough time, but um, this is a, <laughs> this, is, this isn't so much a rough time as you know, seek professional help as quickly as possible. <laughs> yeah. So she turns up disguised as a peddler to sell ribbons and lace and um, looks at Snow White and says, what a fine figure you have. It ought to be laced up properly and then laces her into a corset so tightly Snow White loses her breath, her ribs crushed and she falls down as if dead. Luckily, the seven little men turn up in time and cut the laces and yeah. they warn her again not to let the woman in. Yeah. <laughs> this is the bit that always gets me. It's the, it's the bit they conspicuously left out of Disney, which... Uh... <laughs> yes. <laughs> the part... <laughs> You'd have thought she'd have learned her lesson, but oh no, oh no. Um, no evil she... queen comes back. Yes. So she comes back again, this time with a poisoned comb. And uh, Snow White's kind of like, uh, well, it can't be any harm to let this poor old woman in. And the woman says, let me comb your hair for you. Um, scrapes her with the poison comb. And once again, Snow White falls down as if dead. The se seven little men turn up, uh, remove the comb. And Snow White's okay. And they, once again, they say, you mustn't let anybody in when we're not here. <laughs> <laughs> um Yes, and then finally, the final iteration is the one that people are the most familiar with, which is that she she finally says, okay, well, I'm not going to let anyone in. Um, but she's tempted by a very, very nice-looking apple. Yes. Um, and, of course, this time, uh, when they get back... Now, you'll have to remind me, because um, there is some versions, and I'm not sure if it's just the translated version... Um, which kind of got mixed up with the comb where they are actually able to get the the apple core out of her mouth but it's it's not the Grimm's version where they do that this time she really she does fall into a sort of an eternal sleep she dies yeah oh certainly they think she's dead yeah at which point they they put her in a in a glass coffin which again the glass coffin interests me because I just think that must must have been hella expensive. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. 
how did you afford that? But you couldn't afford like a lady's maid for her or something like that. <laughs> um, so she's put into this kind of glass coffin um, and one day a prince rides by as as one is wont to do and he sees um snow white and of course falls instantly in love with her um and the dwarves have no qualms i say dwarves the 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 seven little people they have they have no qualms about letting this prince peck a little kiss i say a little kiss and a peck uh, about him getting in there that's not what happens in the Grimm's version is it not what happens in the Grimm's version no what happens is the prince rides by and they've they've put her glass coffin out on the mountainside and they've just sort of left her there with one dwarf always keeping watch over her yeah so when the prince happens by he offers them huge amounts of gold for her coffin and the the, the little men say no not for any amount of gold in the world and then the prince makes this very lavish outpouring from his heart as, as to how life will be like death to him unless he may look upon her every day and they're so moved by his plea they agree that perhaps she a king's daughter which is what they've written on this glass coffin mm-hmm. ought to be guarded over by a king's son that kind of makes sense to them okay the prince orders his servants along to collect this glass coffin and as they're carrying it down the mountain, one of them trips over a, a root or a rock or something. It jostles the coffin and the apple is dislodged from her throat. That's piece of it. Apple. Yeah. And she puts up the lid of the coffin, sits up and is obviously very surprised and says, where am I? And the prince immediately proposes to her, barely gives her time to, <laughs> to realise where she is. <laughs> So, I mean, the, the later sort of waking her with a kiss thing, I think that was kind of stolen from Sleeping Beauty. And I think Disney might be responsible for that. Yeah. Um, again, this is the, the fact that obviously there is a little bit of kind of a crossover between Sleeping Beauty and, again, the necrophilia part of things and, and whatnot. Um, yes, yeah, sorry, I was confusing it with, with two different versions. Um so I did know that there was the apple core which was dislodged. Thank you for reminding me. Um, but <laughs> I just like the idea that he's like, I'll give you lots of money. No, but if I can't look at her, I'll die. All right, just take her. Jeez. You can kind of see the, the seven little men standing there looking at each other going, we're never going to get rid of him. Was he's going to be here forever. We can't. We, it's like, we loved her, but maybe not that much. <laughs> put up with this prick. <laughs> Anyway, it sort of writes itself if you're me. But what I like, or what I like, what I find interesting about Schneewittchen is the the epilogue, which deals with what happens to Snow White's wicked stepmother, mm. because the prince sort of rings the bell, says loud and wide, I am marrying Snow White, and he deliberately invites the stepmother to Snow White's wedding. Yes. And at first the wicked queen is not willing to go and then she thinks that she will not be easy unless she sees Snow White Mm. and she goes and then she discovers that she is to be the entertainment at the wedding that they're heating a pair of iron slippers red hot for her and she is to dance them until she falls down dead and I'm like yeah thank you Brothers Grimm that is a very typical ending for you yeah it's just they're like oh Brothers you're you're not going full on sort of gothic here oh no no there we go there we are there we go there it is there, we are. there it is <laughs> don't know why i was uh spoke too soon 
so in previous versions where the, the jealous party just gets abandoned mm. um, very much as if you were cast, casting off a narcissistic person because you know the thing they don't want is to lose your attention yeah and the, the, the ultimate punishment is actually to deprive them of that attention yeah um in this it's kind of like no 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 you're gonna die it, we're gonna basically torture you to death and you will dance at her wedding oh yes you will yeah that it again there's something very visceral about this um i mean obviously it's visceral because that's that's a horrific thing to force anyone to do even if they are a, a villain of you know um, but there is something kind of visceral about the idea of being forced to dance at the wedding of the person that you kind of tried to kill because you were kind of afraid of them usurping your sexual power, yeah. as it were. Yeah, that there is a lot to unpack in, in that idea. In some so ways, <laughs> you could say that the Grimms kind of understood some of the sub-themes better than maybe others did. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I like that one. And <laughs> um, I say I like that. Oh, when I say I like a fairy tale, what I mean is, yeah, that's the that's probably the the retelling or the iteration that works for me, even though it has some really squicky parts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I've got to say is that the Gr the Brothers Grimm get a lot of kind of shtick sometimes. Yeah. Um, but their some of their versions of the tales are actually a lot more nuanced. Yeah. Than yeah, definitely. One might initially give credit for, um, and they did actually seem to understand some of them, even if again they had very, very Christian kind of intentions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, they obviously had their own agenda. Okay, the next one, the next version, I won't go into great detail because it clearly is influenced by Schneewittchen, but it's a Portuguese version. Mm -hmm. And in this version, the Vain Queen, which was published in 1878 by a Portuguese folklorist who was doing basically what the Brothers Grimm were doing, but in yeah. Portugal, um, and was, I think, influenced by their work. A lot of people were influenced by the Brothers Grimm just in terms of collecting folk tales. It became quite a fashionable thing to do. It really, d again, it, one thing that just really amuses me um, is is the time I was doing research into sort of Victorian folklorists and there was literally a folklorist who was just saying, well, I was collecting, you know, these stories before it was a la mode. <laughs> and I was like, it's like there's literally some Victorian folklore she's like well I was doing this before it became cool <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I understand how the guy feels I do genuinely but... um, yeah anyway in the Vain Queen you have the usual tropes except that it's the mother who is jealous of her own daughter mm. and in this one you have the Chamberlain who apparently as I've said has absolutely no diplomacy whatsoever. Just, just no tact. Absolutely none. <laughs> the Queen is admiring herself in the mirror, but she doesn't ask it, like, the mirror's opinion. She turns to the Chamberlain and says, am I not the most beautiful woman in the land? And the Chamberlain, presumably he's so bored of watching this woman look at herself in the mirror and admire herself that he's kind of like drifted off. And he just blurts the first thing that comes to mind instead of something more diplomatic. And he says, oh no, my Queen, there is another fairer still than you. And the Queen is incensed, and the Chamberlain's kind of backpedalling, like, seriously now, sort of like, <laughs> oh shit, I've said completely the wrong thing. I don't want to be beheaded. Um, so he seeks a flattering answer, and he says, no, 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 your daughter, young Snow White, is fairer still than you. And normally that would be a good get-out-jail-free card with, 
you know, offending a woman, sort of like your daughter is more beautiful because daughters were kind of perceived as an extension of their mothers in many, many cultures. Yeah. Um, but no, <laughs> this does not please the queen at all. And it kind of follows the familiar path whereby a huntsman is told to take her seven-year-old daughter out into the forest and kill her and mm. bring back her... I think this is the one where they say bring back the heart and the hunts, that, that all that falls out in the same way. Um, instead of living with seven little men, seven minors or seven actual dwarves um, in fantasy terms, she creeps into an empty peasant cottage and hides under the table and the old man who lives in the cottage finds her there and takes pity on her and he he says would you prefer to live with me as my wife or my daughter and she says oh as your daughter mm-hmm. and he accepts that and he makes a, a he lets her have his bed and he makes a separate bed for himself and then the rest of it kind of falls out in the same way i don't think it's necessarily a corset a comb and an apple i think there might be different items but it's largely the same story mm-hmm. except that what then happens is <laughs> in a, a quite a delightful twist of fate the queen gets outwitted by um, Snow White on a couple of occasions to the point where the Queen accidentally sends the Prince of a Kingdom to her and says that this is the peasant trollop who's caused so much problems blah 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 and yet when the Prince looks around all he can see is a beautiful palace well turned out servants wealth and this absolutely stunning gorgeous young woman who immediately (laughs) proposes to so the Queen kind of accidentally the, the queen is so confused she's kind of like oh maybe it's not my daughter after all and you ought to marry this girl clearly marry her at the, immediately and the prince is like yeah yeah i think i will and snow white's like well yay okay i'll finally have some power um they get married and the wicked queen suddenly realizes that she's just outwitted herself and put the girl beyond her power to harm anymore yeah and that's i think that's what probably one of the most interesting elements is the idea that by marrying she is out of she's kind of beyond the power of her of her mother yes um which again we (laughs) weirdly enough there's a lot of uh rather not really very weird at all um that kind of idea that kind of theme plays into a, a lot of fairy tales in terms of um ownership not ownership but sort of who who gets power where etc yeah definitely um snowdrop which is in the red fairy book written by andrew lang or collected collated by andrew lang in 1890 is almost word for word schneewittchen except that andrew lang being a staid victorian is very concerned with things like where snow white sleeps yes <laughs> and he's he's kind <laughs> really of like, got to make sure that people know <laughs> yes snow white slept in one bed and that that little man he's the one i think who actually used the word dwarf rather than manling yeah and he said and that dwarf then passed one hour of the night with each of his fellows and thereby got through the night like that and it's like that's it's it's so prissy it's so sort of like no she absolutely had her own bed she was not lying in bed with another man (laughs) yeah he was very sensitive to that was 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 dear old andrew (laughs) Um. <laughs> but he does include the detail about the queen being made to dance in red hot iron slippers so. yeah apparently that's never an issue is it no it's fine to torture this woman's death yeah that's absolutely fine our Standard. final example <laughs> is a 
is of Celtic origins. Now, looking at this, I'm kind of like, yes, it probably is of Celtic origins, but I think you've done some serious editing on this. Mm. It was collected by Joseph Jacobs in 1892, and it's called Gold Tree and Silver Tree. Um, there's a king, and his wife is named Silver Tree, and his daughter is named Gold Tree. Um, it follows the same sort of tropes, except that Silver Tree goes into a glen and asks the magic trout that lives in the lake, who is the most beautiful, and the trout obligingly says oh it's your daughter gold tree um, which incenses silver tree and kicks off the entire story Mm. Um, instead of living with seven little men gold tree the snow white character ends up um, living in another country with i'm trying to remember not with a prince she she ends up living in, in a castle in another country um, mm. The first time her stepmother, come, her stepmother, her actual mother comes after her, uh, she lets her in because she's trying to be a dutiful daughter, um, and she's rescued. And then the the queen goes back and speaks to the trout again. It, this trout is kind of just the same thing every single time. <laughs> it's like the chamberlain, it's like for God's sake, just lie. But then just... again, if the trout is a fairy creature, which it may well be, it probably can't lie. It it does sound very much like you know the. Well, I know it's a trout, but it does sound very much like the salmon of knowledge. It from, does a little bit, yeah. From uh, you know the Fenian cycle. Yeah, which so... I, I think is one of the probably one of the origins of, yeah. of that magical fish. The magical fish. The magical Snow White. fish. They love that. <laughs> they love a good magic fish. Um. What I f- oh sorry I've forgotten an important point. The first time the queen goes and to kill her daughter, um, so no the second time she goes to kill her daughter, um, Gold Tree has learned that has decided that it's actually not safe. So she says I I may not open the door to you, and Silver Tree says Well I am your mother. Put forth your little finger through the keyhole that I may kiss it. Be a dutiful child. And Gold Tree is kind of caught over a barrel on that one and sticks a finger through the key- keyhole, at which point her her mother stabs her with a poisoned needle and she drops down with the needle embedded in her finger as if dead. And she's in the suspended animation and the, and the prince who'd originally married her and rescued her, the one who'd been telling her not to let her mother in, um, <laughs> is very upset and puts her in a glass coffin in the top room of the house and locks the door and presumably he visits her again so we've still got the necrophilia in there which is just great thanks for that yeah thanks eventually he remarries a young and beautiful woman because that's who you marry you marry young and beautiful women mm-hmm. um you can hear my eyes rolling there right <laughs> <laughs> and she's both she's clever and kind and she's also very curious so when he's out hunting one day she goes up into this forbidden room and she sees the glass coffin and she opens it and it's like oh there's a beautiful young woman here is it his first wife gold tree by any chance and she examines the the supposed corpse and sees the needle in her finger and draws it forth and gold tree awakens and they have this lovely little heart to heart the two of them and um the the new wife sort of says well you are his first wife he you know it's kind of made my marriage to him not legal yeah and gold tree's like no you've done me such a great service why shall we not both love him and the prince comes home and finds out he's got two wives and he's very happy to have gold tree back because you know he was madly in love with her etc and um they settle down and they're all very happy together 
And I think on the third time that the Queen comes to kill Goldry, because she's not giving up. It's <laughs> just like, oh, she's back. <laughs> um, the three of them united together sort of repel her and she is drowned in the sea. Her longship is sunk. That is an amazing version. I love that version. Yeah, I like it. It's weird. And there are bits of it where it's like, that's a bit threadbare. But I do love the whole the fact that she's rescued by the new wife. And then they sort of, they're kind of like, oh, no, we like each other. Okay, yeah, we can share this husband. That's not a problem. <laughs> Husband's like, great. Polyamory for the win. <laughs> Two young and beautiful women. And they get on together. And they get on together. And, and I love them both. Um Oh, that's nice. What a nice ending. I'm happy with that. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, as long as you skip over the necrophilia side of things there, everything's fine. Yeah, everything's fine. It's uh, any As any good person will tell you, just ignore the necrophilia and <laughs> God, life is much easier if you ignore it. <laughs> yes. Oh. Okay, let's just briefly mentioned some modern retellings of Snow White. So obviously you have the 1937 Disney Snow White, which was based on Schneewittchen and mm. is kind of iconic. Um, Snow White's look, the clothes she wears, the idea of this craggy forested mountain area. For most people, that is where they get their quintessential Snow White feels from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, the, the whole idea of the true love's kiss and stuff like that. Um, is very kind of quintessential to yes. that version um and it is very in keeping with uh, uh with other fairy tales so um there was no way disney was going to include the necrophilia no which is you know good good yeah yeah good well done well done <laughs> um there's an interesting twist in fairest by gail carson levine which is kind of a middle grade novel mm-hmm. and the <laughs> The Snow White character isn't actually beautiful or not classically beautiful, I think, is a thing. She's an innkeeper's daughter who ends up being serving maid to the new queen Mm. because of her beautiful singing voice. She has an unparalleled singing voice. And this is in a country where the... where the... um, a country called Aorthia, where, you know, being able to sing, all their legends, all their religious practices, everything is sung... When they have festivals, everybody sings. So not mm. being able to sing very well or, you know, not having a great singing voice is kind of looked down upon. Beauty comes from being able to sing as much as what you look like. Now, the king yeah. has married a young, beautiful wife who doesn't have much of a singing voice. And when this wife discovers that um, the Snow White character has the singing voice and the ability to both mimic and throw her voice... Um, she sort of takes her into her her council and has Snow White sing whenever she needs to sing. So she's got the Snow White character throwing her voice so it looks like the Queen is singing. Mm, right. It's it's really interesting and it's a it turns out to be a really lovely story in the end. Um I won't tell the whole thing. But I do highly recommend that anyone read Gail Carson Levine's fairy tale retellings because they're always really nuanced and full of heart. Okay, that sounds really, really interesting. I really, really like that. Uh, something completely different. Fairest, again, by Marissa Meyer, which is set on the moon in a future century. 
and is part of her Lunar Chronicles. Mm. And it's the story of the Wicked Queen this time. It's not really from um, Snow White's perspective. It's, you know, you, you have Princess Winter and why this woman is so obsessed with beauty and glamour, etc. So it, it's, another, it's a sort of sci-fi futuristic one. And again, it works really well. Hmm. Okay. All right take that one into recommendation um we then also have uh the tenth kingdom <laughs> the tenth kingdom is one of my it's one of my favorite sort of fairy tale adaptations it's about 10 hours of fairy tales kind of <laughs> in a series and i've made madeline watch at least part of it probably about two hours of it and then we realized that it just wasn't stopping um, but, but the, the main character virginia is really living out the Snow White arc. She's had a mother who abandoned her when she was seven years old. And it turns out later on, the reason her mother abandoned her was because her mother sort of lost her mind momentarily and tried to drown her in the bathtub. She tried to, she tried to kill her daughter. Gosh. And Virginia, it's a portal fantasy. Virginia ends up getting wrapped up in all this, this weird fairy tale shenanigans which has spilled over into our world and going through a portal with her father who is very jaded by this point yes uh, a dog who's only able to talk to her father who's actually a prince in disguise <laughs> and a wolf who is mostly a nice guy except you know when the the, the moon is full kind of thing yeah <laughs> he's like almost straight out of little red riding hood and it's he's just a great this, character he's great, i love him <laughs> There is, there is no wolf so good as, as Scott Cohen in that role. And yeah, it's just amazing. But the, her main character arc, her character arc from abandonment through to acceptance is Snow White's character arc, being abandoned by her mother and mm. coming to terms with the fact that someone who is so important in your life might have tried to hurt you because she discovers she's kind of repressed a lot of this stuff that happened. And it, it's incredibly nuanced and funny. It's a really, really funny series. It is, it is funny. <laughs> and it, it's really moving as well. Um, it's very 90s effects. So, but I think the acting and the script and everything is so good that you can kind of overlook a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. Um, it's definitely of its era, but it's, um, I, I enjoyed it actually. Yeah. Of, of what we watched, I thought it was very good. <laughs> um, of course, I've mentioned Angela Carter. Um, again, her version of the Snow Maiden is kind of a mix between the Snow Maiden and um, Snow White, so it's worth kind of having a look at. Uh, and by God, does she go in with for the necrophilia for that one? Yeah, um, like that's not even subtle. Like, you kind of read it and you go, oh god, um, she, <laughs> she went 100% in for the shock factor on that one, in the way that only Angela Carter can. Um, so be warned, this is definitely not one you want to read to your children at bed. Um, they will never be the same again. <laughs> it's horrifying. It's really awful. Um, yeah, and I I think the only other version of Snow White which really kind of stands out for me, there's two actually, which is the Neil uh, Neil Gaiman has an, actually um, uh, done two adaptations of Snow White. 
One of them involved Snow White actually being vampiric. Yeah, I love that as a concept. I've seen other people have sort of done something similar, but the Neil Gaiman one is kind of iconic. Yeah, and he also wrote another one, uh, which is called uh, The Sleeper and the Spindle. I love that graphic novel. Yeah, um, it's a beautiful graphic novel. It's actually a really, really good um, audio adaptation. There's a radio adaptation of it as well, which is excellent. Um, and I think that's probably my favourite adaptation of Snow White. Because it kind of shows you what happens afterwards. Yes. Um, and Not... the relationship between her and, you know, the... And in this case, I think they are dwarves, but they, as in the very mystical, m- mythical versions, yeah. rather than anything else. Um, yeah, I really, really love that version. Yeah, highly uh, recommend it. Uh, the, there's obviously hundreds and hundreds of retellings of this fairy tale, and you know, to be honest, with fairy tales, if, as long as people get the core themes and things, you can mm. retell it forever because it's that sort of story. Yeah. Absolutely. But these are our favourites. <laughs> yeah, those are our favourites. So, on that note, we are going to uh, finish up there on Snow White. Yes. Um, before we go, though, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation. Once again, I am going to really embarrass Jules. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, because within i'm pretty sure uh it'll be out now by the time this episode airs won't it yes it will yeah um which is harker and blackthorn book seven for the dead travel fast oh god i can't wait to actually have my physical copy of it i've got them all lined up on my bookshelf And also certain things are happening in this one, which... Um... Yeah, uh, this one isn't really for the faint of heart. I think no. I'm a bit gorier in this one. than I... You really are. Um, like, I mean, I'm not going to say it's been a, like a gentle introduction. It's not like you've shied away <laughs> in the past. Um, but, like, this one hits, actually. <laughs> it hits perhaps a little bit harder than some people might um, be expecting um, but it is it's very very good um, one for the Dracula fans it's it's definitely one for the Dracula fans um, which is I think potentially actually to be honest you know there's this whole thing recently which people have been going crazy for which is the sort of the Dracula updates yeah um, of people getting kind of updates from Dracula this is definitely uh, a fantastic one to read in tandem to that because um, first of all when I read this I felt like I was going on holiday to um, uh, to sort of to, to Transylvania to, um, um, <laughs> to Romania and uh, I, I don't want to spoil it I don't want to spoil it but um I think that people are really, really going to enjoy this one, and in particular, getting into kind of um, some of the mythology as well. Uh, it, it's good. It's very, very good. So highly recommend it. Um, keep an eye out for it. And on that note, guys, we'll say thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah. Thanks and goodbye. Bye.
You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. 